Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Monday, September 17th, 2018. And while we have uh, multiple hurricanes, we could talk about the, the hurricane battering the East Coast or the hurricane battering the Trump White House. Uh, joining me uh, today is David Byler of the Weekly Standard, who is the author of the closely watched swing seat model. How are you, David? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Okay. In the interest of full disclosure, we need to acknowledge that we are actually taping this on Friday. So things may have changed by the time you are listening to it. And as we are talking, and I want to talk about, you know, the overall 35,000 foot look at uh, the way the the Senate landscape mm-hmm. may be changing. But of course, we have to uh, just comment on the developments uh, today. Paul Manafort agreeing to cooperate with a special counsel pleading guilty to a variety of reduced charges. But, um, you know, in, in terms of developments, this could range anywhere from, you know, absolutely stunning to uh, we just don't know. But um, I'm just looking at uh, the, the the Washington Post reports. And, and, and again, by the time people listen to this, you'll know a lot more and probably will be able to ab- absorb uh, the reaction of Trump world, which hey, I can predict will be uh, no collusion, um, nothing about Trump, uh, still a witch hunt. But apparently there were witches out there. So, I mean, what we have is, you know, President Trump's former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, pleading guilty to two criminal charges under terms of a plea deal that includes his cooperation as a potential witness for special counsel Robert S. Mueller. Wow. The decision by Manafort to provide evidence in exchange for leniency on sentencing is a stunning development in the long-running probe into whether any Trump associates may have conspired with Russia to influence the 2016 election. And for those of you keeping track at home, this uh, this uh, this plea uh, brings to five uh, the number of Trump campaign officials who have uh, who have been you know convicted of criminal activity. So uh, we're watching those stories. And here's a remi- here's a reminder, though, that uh, in modern American politics, things can change and shift very rapidly. You know, David, you have been tracking the uh, the, the, the 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 Senate, and uh, you know, here's another caveat. Remember, in 2016, all the things that happened in the month of October. You know, just take the day October 7th. I was talking about this on Friday with Kyle Cheney of Politico. Just on just on. October 7th, you had the Access Hollywood video. You had the Obama administration releasing the the finding by the intelligence community that Russia was in, you know, in interfering in the election. And that same day, you had the first WikiLeaks leaks of uh, John Podesta's emails. And, and that was just October 7th. And that was even before the James Comey. So, you know, anything that we say now, you know, basically put an asterisk on it because things change. So I want to talk about your model, the swing seat model which uh, has uh, really become kind of a, a gold standard look at the, the, the state of play in the United States Senate. And last time you and I talked, David, you put uh, Republican chances of keeping the Senate at more than 70 percent, but you have revised, revised this model, and that percentage is still strong, but it has dropped down to 60 percent. So, so let's talk about this, um, how the, the model has changed and why you have you know, somewhat downgraded the Republican prospects of keeping the Senate. Right. So like you said, the models changed. It used to be sort of a 70 percent Republican win probability. But at that time, 
the model was uh, almost solely using polling data. So you'd aggregate the data, figure out how much you think it would change between now and election day, and sort of get your projections based on that. You try to figure out how much races move together, so on and so forth. And the model still does all of those things, but it has an added component, which is called the fundamentals part of the forecast. I guess I don't have a snappy name for it. But essentially, I use things that are not head-to-head polling to also predict where the races are going to go. So I use things like the fact that it's a midterm year, President Trump's approval rating, past election results in each state, uh, things along those lines, uh, which senator is an incumbent, which one is not, uh, to get a sense of where the polls are going. Now, when I started sort of building in these fundamentals before I had ran any of the calculations, I thought, surely these fundamentals are going to help the Republicans win probability because you have so many Republicans in these uh, red states that are running, you know, that variable is just going to wash out the effect of everything else. And, you know, I'm, I'm betting that my forecast will be both more accurate and more Republican leaning. Sure. The backtesting found that this version of the forecast is more accurate and was better able to project who's going to win, uh, which races, by what margin, that sort of thing. But it didn't help the Republicans. Instead, what you have is a few strong factors in a number of different states pushing towards the Democrats enough that, at least for the moment, it's overwhelming the redness in some of these other states. So uh, in a lot of these this red... Is fa- this, is, this, is, this is fascinating because, as you point out, you would think that the fundamentals would, would be favoring Republicans in an off-year election, given the map. But, you know, you're saying that despite these friendly polls, polls that might look good for the Republicans, these fundamentals are breaking at the moment for Democrats. So let's, I'm going to continue on that. Yeah, exactly. And essentially, the way the model is thinking about it is it starts out by saying, okay, it's a midterm year uh, where a Republican is president. That automatically gives Democrats a bonus. It also looks at Trump's approval rating, which is in the range of past presidents, but really is on the low end. And it says, that's a pretty low presidential approval rating. Maybe this midterm is going to be extra bad. It gives uh, incumbent senators a bonus because usually incumbents do better than non-incumbents. And those things stack up in a lot of these states. And sometimes they wash out with the redness of the states. But uh, sometimes in these red states or in the swing states like Florida, uh, the sort of push that these blue factors give is bigger than the push that the red factors give. Now, it's worth noting that the model is built in a way that the fundamentals sort of diminish in strength over time. So if the polls don't go the way that the fundamentals think that they will, then the model is going to respond. It's going to sort of update its belief. And a good example of this uh, in Missouri right now, the fundamentals give uh, sort of a light push in Claire McCaskill's direction. But if the polls remain essentially tied over time, those fundamentals are going to become weaker and weaker. And the Josh Hawley's probability of winning will go up. And that's kind of how the model's built. Okay, so your model still thinks the most likely scenario is that uh, the GOP wins 50 seats by holding their safe seats, defending Texas and Tennessee, and taking North Dakota. (laughs) But as you point out, there's a wide range of scenarios. I mean, Democrats could sweep all the competitive seats, or Republicans could make solid gains. I'm not sure that a lot of people have factored in um, how significant the upside for Republicans remains, that yes, Democrats could win, but they kind of have to 
run the table on all of this, whereas Republicans could get up to, am I, I remembering, uh, 55, 56 seats under your, your, your previous model? Yeah, yeah. This is a thing that people don't always realize about the Senate map. It has sort of the fancy stats way of talking about it is it has a reasonably long right tail, which is that if, you know, polls move away from the Democrats and suppose the polls are also underestimating the Republicans, you could get a scenario where there's a whole sort of large number of Republican pickups and they kind of pad their margin and are in better shape heading into 2020. But once the Democrats get beyond Tennessee and Texas, Arizona and Nevada, uh, it becomes pretty tough sledding for them. The states get a lot redder, uh, a lot faster. There's Nebraska, Wyoming, Utah, states that really look, you know, as safe as, say, you know, New York on the Democratic side or something along those lines. Mitt Mitt Romney is not going to lose that race in Utah. No, I don't think so. So let's go back to um, to Missouri. I want to go state state by state. And you you, you mentioned Missouri, which is uh, very which is interesting. Now, you cite the Fox News poll, which you think is one of the best in the business. Mm -hmm. That poll has the race tied. Um, but as you as you point out, um, you know when you factor in these fundamentals, um, you basically are deciding the odds are, are two to one in favor of McCaskill instead of fifty fifty. That, yeah, that's a pretty dramatic difference. That is a difference. Um, I I think I think it's a difference that does matter. I think it's important. I think that there's you know real difference there. I do think that sometimes people overinterpret the 50% to 66%. They it's it's easy to round things that are above 50% up in your head to like 100%. 2 to 1 odds, that's obviously better than 50-50, but you know, the the one there happens one out of every 3 times. It's still very much anybody's race. It's it's competitive. Maybe leans or tilts Democratic is the right way to think about it. And of course, we remember all of those projections back in 2016. Right. Where you know Donald Trump had about a, what a twenty five percent chance in a lot of those uh, predictions. Let's go to Arizona because you also have a rather significant shift in the fundamentals. Um, the fundamentals there, you are pushing the estimate toward the Democrats. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Kirsten Cinema by a pretty substantial margin. Uh, the polls show a single digit race, but you are now giving her what percentage chance of winning? The Democrats picking up that seat. Um, I think it's upwards of 80, if I'm remembering right. This is a scenario where the last election cycle was not very good for Republicans in Arizona. So the model is looking at that, and it's looking at all those other factors that I uh, previously sort of named off. And yeah, the polls have tightened reasonably, uh, but the model also tries to – how would I say this? When it looks at polling, the model's memory gets shorter – as we get closer to election day. But right now, the model is still factoring in some of those earlier polls that had cinema up by, you know, wider margins. So the model doesn't think it's exactly even in the polling yet. But this is also one of those races that I talked about where, you know, the fundamentals are going to matter and they're going to uh, have an effect through election day. But if McSally sort of defies the fundamentals and keeps it close or builds a lead or something along those lines, the model is going to respond appropriately and progressively give less weight, if that makes sense. Okay. So that would be a net pickup of one seat for the the Democrats. Let's go to Indiana. 
um, where there have been some polls showing that the Republican there, uh, Mike Braun, is, uh, you know, has, has some momentum against the, the Democratic incumbent Joe Donnelly. But what do the fundamentals say in Indiana? Yeah, the fundamentals also uh, sort of give it a light push, a little lighter than in the case of Missouri, uh, towards Joe Donnelly, who's the incumbent. And the polling in that state has been interesting. Indiana has some laws that makes it more difficult to get frequent good quality polls uh, like you would get mm-hmm. in, say, Florida or Missouri. Uh, so we have a couple data points. The Fox poll, if I recall correctly, was uh, showed a tight race, I think, with Braun ahead. But there have been a number of other polls. Some of them showed Braun up. Some of them showed Donnelly up. There was one uh, from a Republican group that showed Donnelly up by double digits. So you kind of put all of these things together, and it thinks that Donnelly is kind of an on-odds favorite in this one. Okay. Now, before we get to the some of the, some of the, the, the big dogs here, Florida and Texas, I have to ask you on, on this question of polls and how you evaluate the accuracy of polls. Uh, uh, you, you've seen this New York Times live poll that they're doing. Mm-hmm. I assume you, you, you've watched it. When, what, the one thing that jumped out at me, and I, again, I talked about this on Friday with Kyle Cheney, the, uh, at, at one point in one of the congressional districts, they had made more than 300 cell phone calls and had completed none of them. Um, so, you know, in, in terms of polling, I think a lot of people, even, you know, even insiders listening to this are wondering, you know, you know are, how challenging is this environment and, and, you know, the changing demographics and the changing technology, how challenging is this for polls when you're at the at the state and local level? Yeah, well, I, I love the upshots experiment that they're doing where they're kind of laying out how the sausage gets made. I think that's a, just a fantastic project. So the way that I think about this is that, yes, it's a, it's a challenge for pollsters to try to get a really representative sample. Um, a lot of people just don't pick up their phones and pollsters have ways to sort of compensate for that or get around that, so on and so forth. But I guess the overriding thing for me for now, at least, is that the polls might have a low response rate, but they're still about as accurate as ever. If you think back to, you know, if there was a situation in which uh, these response rates were really throwing off the sample in a way that didn't didn't allow us to use Uh, them for prediction. We would have seen that in past elections. Now, that's kind of a weird garbled sentence. But basically what I'm trying to say is that if you look back at the special house elections like Pennsylvania 18 Mm -hmm. or Arizona 8 or Georgia 6 or the Alabama Senate special elections, all these post-Trump high-profile elections, the polls did all right. In some cases, they did well. In some cases, they had kind of a normal amount of error. In Alabama, they were a little all over the board. But if you average them, I, if I recall correctly, you got relatively close. So it seems like the methods that we've sort of been using previously, which is to uh, trust uh, the data that we're getting from the pollsters, aggregate it in a sensible way, and there's more than one sensible way to do that, and understand kind of the error that's around it, sort of those methods have so far continued to work in during the Trump okay. era. So that's that's kind of my guiding star on it. That that's a really good answer, by the way. Oh, thanks. Um, okay, so let, let's let's get to uh, as I said, the, the big dogs, Florida, and I, and I and I think your findings on the model are fascinating in Florida because you have a really dramatic shift here. Um, you you before you edit in the fundamentals, you had Republican Rick Scott 
um, slightly favored uh, to, mm-hmm. to unseat uh, Democrat, uh, the Democratic senator there, Nelson. Um, but uh, your your new poll drops that from over 50 percent down to 15 percent. Yeah. So this and is that, the that's the biggest swing. Is that the biggest swing you, you, you have in the model? Yes. Yes, it is definitely the biggest swing that we have in the model. And this is another case where the fundamentals line up in one way and the polls line up in another way. Uh, the best way that I can think of to illustrate this is to think about Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. other swing states that have Democratic incumbents running this cycle. Those states are widely considered to be safe. They're not sort of in the top tier, uh, say for Democrats, they're not sort of in the top tier of states that people are looking at for some kind of a flip. And so the model thinks that Florida's fundamentals are pretty similar to states like that or a state like Michigan and thinks, well, in reality, this should be uncompetitive. The polls say that it is competitive. And right now, at this point in the cycle, it ends up getting to a point where they say, well, you know, Rick Scott shouldn't be counted out, but Nelson Mm -hmm. is a relatively heavy favorite. Now, there's more than one way to mix polls with fundamentals. I think a reasonable modeler could get different answers on this one. You just think the race is going to break toward the Democrats in Florida. Exactly. In most races that are similar to this one, according to how my model looks at things, the race ends up breaking towards the out party, towards Democrats in this election. And so the model thinks it's going to head that way, but, you know, it it might not. That's one of the things. It's well, in the well, aggregate. Yeah. Or sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, you're looking at a lot of these races where, you know, a three-point swing nationally, uh, one way or another, just changes everything. I mean, it's just, uh, it, you, you could really start running the board. Well, let's go to the most, what I think is the, one of the most fascinating and surprising uh, contest in, in in Texas, where um, again it, it appears that that despite everyone assuming that that was going to be a safe Republican seat, that Ted Cruz is facing more headwinds. What are you what, what are you predicting there? So this is an interesting one um, because the polls have shown a tightening race between uh, Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke, but the model looks at the fundamentals in that state and it actually helps Cruz. It takes him up from. Uh, I I think the poll implied probability is something like 70 to 75 percent. I don't have those numbers in front of me at this moment, but it's somewhere in that sort of range. And the model bumps that up to closer to 80 or 85 percent probability. So this is a case where the fact that Cruz is, is an incumbent, he's running in a red state, so on and so forth, do actually sort of wash out the effects of the other fundamentals and give Cruz an advantage. And, you know, 85-15 is still not safe. Like you said earlier in this show, Donald Trump was at 15% in some of the highest quality models during the 2016 presidential election cycle. Um, The model is pricing in possibilities that this keeps tightening or that, you know, O'Rourke is uh, doing a, that O'Rourke essentially keeps on closing that lead. But it's it's bumping things sort of in Cruz's direction at this moment. I, I think before we uh, we started today, I saw a poll on on the governor's race, which had the uh, the, the Democrat uh, up by uh, four or five points over over Ron DeSantis uh, Gillen, um, which again um, might indicate that the the Republicans are facing some headwinds in in Florida. Mm-hmm. And who knows how the whole 
Puerto Rican uh, issue, you know, plays out with, you know, the president yeah. and his supporters uh, went out of their way to, de to deny or, or downplay the death toll in Puerto Rico. Now, now the Republicans, you know, Rick Scott and DeSantis distance themselves from Trump, but I'm not sure that that's going to be enough. OK, so in in Tennessee and North Dakota, you're still seeing um, uh, the odds on favorites would be the Republicans um, to uh, in, in Tennessee hold the seat. Marsha Blackburn is uh, is up about 60 percent uh, probability. And in North Dakota, which uh, I think everybody is thinking is the is the best uh, chance for Republicans to knock off an incumbent Democrat, uh, you have Kevin Kramer, still a roughly two to one favorite to win that race. Mm -hmm. I mean, even though Heidi Heitkamp has to know every single person in North Dakota. Yeah, I but there are like eight people there. <laughs> it is it is one of the the less populous states, one where uh, you really can build a local sort of localized brand, and I think that was one of Heitkamp's big strengths in 2012. But these are uh, states where the sort of difference between the fundamentals and the polls are a little bit more kind of wishy washy, and where the Republicans are favored, where it's not guaranteed. You know if the national environment were to become more democratic and if we were to start seeing state-level polls that showed Democrats sort of gaining everywhere, these are states that would be in more trouble than they are now for the Republicans. But uh, the, you know, like you said, the median simulation is one where the Republicans hold Texas and Tennessee and take North Dakota, and that's 50 seats. If you average all the simulations together, it's uh, about 50.5 or 50.6 Republican seats. Now, obviously, you can't have half or 0.6 of a seat, but that means that it's between 50 and 51. But, you know, there are wide error margins on this thing. Will there be a change um, or, or when will we start to see a change in the methodology of the polls? The reason I'm asking that is, you know, here here in Wisconsin, we, we have a very, you know, very widely respected poll, but it also changes the Marquette University law poll. But they change their methodology as you get closer to the election. They tighten the screen. They focus more on likely voters. Um, is, is, is there some date, some line that, that we're going to start to see these polls become, you know, have, have higher credibility in your eyes? Yeah, so the polls do get more accurate as you get closer to election day, partially because of the likely voter screen you're talking about, partially because people just make up their mind if they haven't been paying attention so far. And I would say that the the sort of canonical day that everyone cites is that Labor Day is when things start to change. But, you know, there are so many different polling firms and they're going to do different things at different dates. It's uh, I can't pinpoint one day when sort of it's all going to happen, but it's kind of a gradual process that is happening sort of as we talk. Yeah. And, um, you know, obviously the one of the fundamentals is that it does appear that the that the Republicans are facing considerable headwinds. You know, there, there has been a lot of speculation about uh, why the president's approval rating dropped in the last uh, three, three months. And I, I'd like to get your take on that. You know, there are there's a you know, school of thought that says that it's because of, you know, the cumulative weight of uh, the negative stories or perhaps uh, his uh, handling of the McCain thing. Um, there are others, and I, I, I tend to lean in this particular direction, that also you're, you are starting to see people dialing in more. People are paying attention. There's a seasonality to it. And if if that's the case, you could see more movement between now and November. But, but what's your, your, your take on that? Right. Well, historically, in a lot of these midterm off-year elections, 
you do see movement against the president and against his party sort of as you get closer to election day. So I think what you're talking about with people tuning in and kind of making more decisions and thinking about politics more because they're going to have to vote soon, I think that that's a real thing. In terms of the actual events that lead to Trump's approval increasing or decreasing, um, I've written a number of pieces about this, but I think this is a tougher nut to crack than people kind of give it credit for because there's a lot of things that happen at once and not everything that gets sort of press coverage in Washington is the sort of story that moves public opinion. And some of these movements are important because we're sort of on the bubble. Like I said, Senate 60% Republican chance, 40% Democratic chance. So these, these small moves are important, but they really are small. It's not like there's a five-point drop one day and a 10-point increase the next day, we're usually talking about changes of one or two percentage points in the polls, which can be caused by a number of things. I mean, my my view on a lot of the Trump approval polls so far when we've had a you know sudden uptick or a sudden drop is to sort of wait and see if it sticks for another month. It's yeah. a little bit less of an option now that we're getting closer to the election, but you know, waiting a month and seeing if it sticks kind of makes a lot of the drops and surges that we've seen over time, and I'm using air quotes when I say that, sort of disappear. Right. The the, the noise is evened out. Uh, well, of course, there's also just the intensity factor, and, and this, this election mm-hmm. is going to be become uh, obviously relatively nasty, and, you know, wh- whether or not, uh, you know, wh- which side is more motivated, and I think, again, if that's a fundamental, um, that would certainly be the, that, that would certainly be the Democrat, at least at the moment. Here, because you know, again, it's th- things can change and things can change so so rapidly. Um, I, the, the the frustration of the Republicans in trying to get the focus on the economy is really is really is really something. Um, well, you know, you, you're talking about you know how you know the, these models, you know, the sixty percent uh, model. You know, remember, your the presidential election was decided by about seventy thousand votes in mm-hmm. in several swing states. So and and it's certainly conceivable looking at your model that, you know, something like 70,000 or maybe even fewer votes could determine control of the Senate. You know, the difference between, you know, plus 70 and you know minus 70 could flip a number of these these Senate seats. Oh, yeah, that's that's true. And the other wrinkle that's uh, that's really interesting in this is the Mississippi special Senate. So I kind of forecast that one a little bit separately with using expert ratings as well as the fundamentals and kind of a, a little bit of a different methodology. But they're going to have uh, one of these big primaries where everybody's on the same ballot on election day. And then mm-hmm. if nobody gets above 50 percent, it'll go to a runoff. And the Republican candidate uh, who has been sort of uh, who has the seat right now has been uh, appointed to Bill mm-hmm. Cochran's seat. Uh, looks like she'll make it through the runoff based on current polling, along with Mike Espy, who's, I think, probably about the best Democratic candidate that uh, they could have gotten in the state. And so it's totally plausible that we don't know who controls the Senate until December. Mm-hmm. The model thinks that Republicans uh, are you know, pretty heavy favorites to, to hold on to that seat, but it could it could get even crazier than, you know, uh, however many thousands or tens of thousand votes on election day could stretch out even further. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a sign of the times, though, that, that you would talk about a, a Senate seat in 
Missouri being, you know, pretty heavily favored because as we both know, there's no way that a Democrat could win in Alabama or Mississippi. Oh, wait. Yeah, right. David Byler, thanks so much. Um, the swing seat model is up on the uh, the Weekly Standard uh, site and it is absolutely fascinating. And uh, how, how often do you update it? I update it daily. Yeah, every single day you can you can you can check in on all of this and the the, the, the drama is going to the drama will intensify between now and November. David, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it very much. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again. <laughs>